Hey, good morning, Emmanuel family. Welcome to those who are online as well to the first in-person service of um, 2023. And we're starting a new sermon series today called Living the Blessed Life. Now, we've never done this before, but we're going to do an eight-month series. Yeah, I heard the groans. No, no. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 from January to August. There's going to be four sermon series. So here's my encouragement to you. Saturate yourself in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Every week, read through those three chapters. Let them soak down deep inside of you. This morning, I'm beginning Living the Blessed Life, and it's an eight-week series on the Beatitudes of Jesus. Now, how should we understand the Beatitudes? One of the words that we ought to think about when we think about the Beatitudes is counterintuitive, upside down. They don't seem to make sense on the surface. I read an article um, two weeks ago that caught my attention. It's entitled, The Nine Counterintuitive Laws of Life. It's not Christian. It was just a business article, actually. And let me just give you those nine counterintuitive rules for life. Number one, all of you who are dating, if you want someone to be romantically interested in you, appear disinterested in them. Okay, how many of you have ever had somebody, you know, that liked you and they were falling all over you and it was a turnoff? One of the ways that you get somebody to be romantically involved is to, like, just hold back a little bit. Number two, to have more free time, you must structure your time. Number three, we struggle being vulnerable to others because we're afraid of looking weak, but we see vulnerability in others as being strength. Here's all of those of you that want New Year's resolutions of exercise. When you don't have time to exercise, that is precisely the time that you need exercise the most. Exercising when you're tired gives you more energy. The moment you're laying on the couch saying, I know I should get up on the treadmill, but I'm so exhausted, that's the moment that you should get on the treadmill and it'll actually give you more energy. If you don't try because you're afraid you'll fail, you will. The more you try to control someone, the further they will slip from your grasp. Just two more. Creating a business that appeals to everyone will appeal to no one. And then lastly, doing things to keep other people happy keeps you from happiness. These are nine counterintuitive laws of life. At first you say, no, that's not true. And then you go, mm, actually, they are. 
That's how we see the Beatitudes of Jesus. Jesus says in these eight Beatitudes the most unbelievable things, and at first blush, you say, oh, no, 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 I don't want to do that. That can't be true. And then you go, hmm, let me think about that. What do you consider to be the blessed life? Have you ever heard somebody say, well, you know, I'm just blessed? What does that mean? Some people think the blessed life is living comfortably, having a successful career, having a great family, fulfilling your dreams, enjoying good health, and living a long life. You know what Jesus says about those things? None of those are markers of a blessed life. None of them. How can that be? Because we all know people who have all of those things and are still miserable. It's an upside-down world in the kingdom of God. So there are five things that I want to share with you quickly about how we should see the Beatitudes. And then, in just a moment, we're going to look at the first Beatitude. The first is, the word Beatitude means blessed or happy. But it's not the kind of happiness based on circumstances. Two of our five grandchildren got iPod, um, um, AirPod Pros from Holly and I for their Christmas present, and they're like super happy. They keep texting us, oh, we love our AirPen. It's not the kind of happiness that comes out of circumstances. The kind of happiness that Jesus is talking about is actually translated this inward sense of peace and satisfaction that is independent of circumstances. But the word beatitude really means blessed or happy. Number two, the beatitudes are only for people who have a genuine, genuine relationship with Jesus. It's insider language. Have you ever heard somebody say, oh, the world would be so much better if we all lived by the beatitudes? The beatitudes are only for people already in the kingdom. Third, the Beatitudes are not goals that we should strive for. They are actually dispositions of the heart. Now, this is interesting. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you sincerely know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, doesn't mean you're perfect, but if you actually have a relationship with Jesus, you actually have, at least in seed form, all of these Beatitudes. And the rest of your life is about sanctification. The rest of your life is about helping these beatitudes grow in you, but you already have them in some level in seed form at least. So they're not goals. They're dispositions of the heart. The beatitudes are what describes what the kingdom of God looks like here on this earth. Remember, Jesus said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does it mean to see thy kingdom come? It means to see the fruition of these beatitudes in God's people. And then lastly, Jesus is the embodiment of the beatitudes. What is the goal of the Christian life? Only one thing, to become like Christ, to grow in Christ-likeness. To grow in Christ-likeness is to live like Jesus lived. And how did Jesus live? He lived out these beatitudes perfectly. So with that in mind, we're gonna to begin today by looking at the first 
beatitude from Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Here it is. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In order to understand this beatitude, we have to ask ourselves three questions. Here they are. The first is, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? The second is, what does a poor in spirit life look like? And the third is, what's the payoff? What, why is a poor in spirit life blessed and how is it blessed by God? So let's begin. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Actually, in the Bible, there are two words for poor. The first is penehost, a, 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 a penny cross, and the second is pentehost. Okay, here, who cares about that? Well, the first word for poor means poor in a general sense. You and I all know people who are poor in a general sense. They may not have, they may, you know, they may have food stamps. Some of you here may be poor in that regard, but you may not, you, you may be struggling financially. The second word refers to absolute poverty. You don't have any food. You don't have any money. You don't have a car. You don't own your home. All you have is the clothes on your back. That's it. And listen to this. It's absolute poverty in the sense that you don't have any means to change your position. Hopelessness. So not only do you not have anything, you have no hope of getting anything. Which do you think, which word do you think that Jesus used when he described poor in spirit? It's the second word. It's not the general. It's the absolute poverty. So what does that mean? It means that Jesus says, blessed are those who understand, they realize that they are completely spiritually bankrupt without God. That they recognize that all of their goodness, all of their righteousness is what the Apostle Paul calls filthy rags before God. You know, don't you know some people that are like, they see the, they, they see the Christian life as, as long as I do more good in life than bad, God's going to treat me okay? It's the realization that no matter how much you try, no matter how good you may be, no matter how nice you are to people, it's never going to be good enough to earn God's favor because God is holy and perfect. Now, it also means, this poor in spirit, also means knowing that the only hope that we have in life is to go to God to receive help. We've seen a recent example of this in the sports world with the incident of DeMar Hamlin. You know what took place January 2nd? He got hit and went into a cardiac arrest. It was the Cincinnati Bengals in the Buffalo Bills game. And I think we have a video that I just want to show you while I'm talking. Um, do you see all of those players on the field praying as the ambulance drives away? I want you to think about this for a moment. It's just a little snapshot. Think about this. 
all of the powerful men that are on this field, that are in the best shape of their lives, all of the millions and millions and millions of dollars that have been poured into them as players and into the NFL in general, all of the resources of the medical community and the NFL. But what do you see? You see a bunch of players on a field kneeling, asking for God's help. Dan Orlovsky, commentator on ESPN. How many of you heard the prayer that he prayed spontaneously? He's in the middle of an ESPN broadcast and he just says, you know, I don't know if this is right or not, but I just think we ought to stop and pray right here. He stops the broadcast and he bows his head and all the rest of the commentators bow their head and he humbly reaches out and says, oh God, would you be with Damar? Would you be with his family? Would you bring healing to him? Listen, that's what it means to be poor in spirit. It means to humble yourself. It means to recognize that though you may have gifts, talents, and abilities, all of them, when you compare yourself to God, are really of little value, of no value, actually. And there's not a single thing you can do to earn or buy your salvation. It's only a gift of God's grace. And so the poor in spirit are really those who have humbled themselves. Okay, so that's the first question. What, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? The second question is, what does a poor in spirit life look like? There are several qualities of a poor in spirit life. I only want to mention three today. And here's my suggestion, one to ten. One is, I got none of this. Ten is, no, 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 I think I'm really on the way. Okay, don't, don't raise your hand, don't say I'm a five, don't shout out I'm a five or I'm a three or I'm a seven. It's just a personal thing, right? But I want to highlight three qualities of what a poor in spirit life looks like. The first is a life that lives under the authority of God. Jesus said in John chapter six, verse 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This means that Jesus did not live to please himself. He actually lived, listen to this, Jesus, the son of God, lives under the authority of the father and says, I'm gonna live my life to please God. I'm not gonna do my will, I'm gonna do his will. And notice how this worked out. Philippians chapter two, verses eight and nine. When he appeared in human form, Jesus, he humbled himself in obedience to God and he died a criminal's death on a cross. Here's the next verse. Therefore, God exalted him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. We all want to be exalted. You know how you get exalted in the kingdom of God? Getting yourself under God's authority. We all have dreams, we all have desires, we all have things that we want for our lives, we all have things that we want for our kids' lives. We want a good life, we want a blessed life. How do you get that? You don't get it the way that the world says to get it, you get it by getting underneath God's authority and by doing his will, by doing things that he desires. It's an upside down kingdom. 
The poor in spirit person realizes that they cannot always trust themselves to make good and wise decisions. Okay, am I the only person who has ever thought that they were making a good decision and then after you make the decision, it goes south really quick and you're like, I don't know, this is terrible. I don't know what I was thinking. You've lived out Proverbs 14, 12. There is a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death. But if we live under God's authority and really seek to do what he wants us to do, we have the promise that he's going to help us and he's going to guide us. So this brings up a, a simple question. How do you know God's will? There's lots of people who are paralyzed with the idea of this big thing, God's will. How do you know God's will? Let me just give you a little bit of advice that somebody passed on to me years ago that has helped me immensely. I never worry anymore about God's will. I just don't. I don't worry about missing God's will. I don't worry about finding God's will as if God's will is lost. I don't worry at all about God's will. Here's why. Somebody passed this on to me, and I'm just passing it on to you, and it was life-changing to me. If you will do what you already know to be God's will, you'll never have to worry about finding God's will. So here's a simple little exercise. You go home this afternoon before the game. You go home this afternoon, just get out a piece of paper. It's not going to take you long. But get out a piece of paper, and at the top of the paper, say this. What do I already know God's will is for my life? It's very simple. And just make a list. What do you know that's already God's will? Love my wife. Okay? You focus on that. Provide for my family. Okay. Pay the bills. Okay. Be nice to my crummy neighbor. Okay. We mystify God's will so much that we get paralyzed. Do what you already know. Just say, Lord, what, what's your will for me? Just write out a list of 10, 12, 20 things, and you focus on those, and here's what's going to happen. Once you got those down, create another list. You will never miss God's will if you'll do what you already know you're supposed to do, that's God's will. And when big things come up, we're like, oh my goodness, I've got two jobs I need to choose from. Okay. You just go old school. You just get under God's authority. You say, okay, I need some real help. I need some real wisdom. And God will lead you and God will guide you. Why? Because you're poor in spirit. You realize that Mark on my own makes bad decisions, but if I'm under the authority of God, if I am poor in spirit, the Holy Spirit's going to help me. Number two, a poor in spirit person is a person who lives a life of compassion. Matthew 9, 36, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When you're poor in spirit, God gives you a heart for other people. And you understand 
where they've been and where they are because you've been there too. Jesus understands our predicament. Hebrews 4.15 says, this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings that we do, yet he didn't sin. So just reflect on this for a moment and let compassion grow on the inside of you. Are you lonely? Jesus was lonely. Has someone rejected you? Jesus was rejected. Are you misunderstood? Jesus was misunderstood. Are you having financial problems? Jesus didn't have a penny to his name, and he had a treasure that went bad. Are you homeless? Jesus was too. Have you been taken advantage of? Jesus was taken advantage of. Are you anxious? Are you emotionally exhausted? Are you at the end of your limit? Jesus was so emotionally exhausted and under such great pressure that in the Garden of Gethsemane, he sweat like great drops of blood. It just poured from him, just like you had an open cut that would just gush. Jesus gets you. And when you allow Jesus to get you, something happens on the inside of you and you begin to get other people. So instead of judging other people, you begin to go, I understand. You've heard me say this before, hurt people hurt people. So when you have people in your life that are just like all porcupine, you know, you want to love some people, but some people, they're just all porcupine and you just, oh, it just hurts me to love you. You're just a porcupine stabbing me. You know what I'm saying? Why do you keep going back to that person? Because they need love and they need your compassion. Number three, a poor in spirit person lives a life of forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32 says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Poor in spirit people recognize that the same nature that caused a person to hurt you resides in you and that you have hurt other people unintentionally. In other words, instead of judging somebody who has hurt you, you take a step back and say, the same nature that's inside of them that caused them to hurt me is the same nature that's inside of me and that I'm very capable of hurting other people. And so, because we've been extravagantly forgiven by God, we ought to be able to turn around and extravagantly forgive other people who have hurt us and who continue to hurt us. I'm not saying that it's easy, and I'm not saying that there's not a process of forgiveness, because there is a process of forgiveness. I'm not talking about cheap forgiveness. Oh, yeah, whatever, let them go. But you haven't really done the mental and emotional work of letting them go. But in essence, the biblical definition of forgiveness is Releasing the right to punish them. Letting them go. Okay, so that's what a poor in spirit life looks like. One to ten, how are you doing? Some of you may be a three on the forgiveness scale, and this may be something that you need to work on. Allowing God to create in you a new heart of compassion for people. Third question is, what blessings are offered to those who live a poor-in-spirit life? Jesus answered, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Okay, what does that mean? What does it mean when Jesus said that you get the kingdom of heaven? So if you have a poor in spirit disposition and you're living out a poor in spirit life, a counterintuitive life, yours is the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Does it mean that you have the hope that one day you'll be rewarded in heaven? No, actually, that's not true here. I'm not saying that you won't not be rewarded in heaven. I'm saying that when Jesus says that theirs is the kingdom of heaven, he's actually talking about now. Think about this. Wherever God is, there is his kingdom. The kingdom of God is ultimately wherever God is allowed to go. So here's what it means. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you will get underneath of God's authority, if you will live a poor in spirit life, here's what God will do for you. You will begin to see and sense God's presence and movement in your life like you never have before. For theirs is the kingdom of God is nothing more than saying God's presence becomes more real to you as you yield to his authority in your life and as you recognize your spiritual poverty that you bring nothing of meaning and value, that you are spiritually bankrupt, you bring nothing to the table before God but just simply, here I am. God promises that his presence will become more real to you. I've been saturating myself in several resources because we're going to be here in Matthew 5 through 7 for eight months. So I've been reading a book by um, Fryer, Jeffrey Kirby, on the Beatitudes called The Kingdom of Happiness. And in this first Beatitude, at the end of his exposition of what this beatitude means, he offers a prayer. And I want to give this prayer to you. Okay, up on the speakers here on each side is this prayer. And it's kind of like a first Sunday of January prayer that you can begin to pray all year. So if this is meaningful to you, as the worship team closes out the service, you can just come up and get it and then go back to your seat. But, but here's the prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to be happy. Keep me from misery and the lies of this world. As so many things promise happiness, I turn and surrender to you. I am poor in spirit, and I desperately need you. Come to me as I wait, empty and open to your grace. Nothing can fill me with happiness except you and your blessings. Bring me into your kingdom. Bless me with happiness through Christ our Lord. Amen. Everybody I know wants to be happy. 
I want to live a blessed life. Don't you want to live a blessed life? It's counterintuitive. The way that the world tells you to get a blessed life is going to end up a dead end. But if you will start with a genuine relationship with Jesus, start wherever you're at. If you're a new person who's just given their life to Christ, like Christmas Eve, we had many people that gave their life to Christ. If you're a new person or whether you've been pursuing Jesus for decades, if you have a genuine relationship with Jesus, if you will continue to lean into him and confess your spiritual poverty and that you just really don't have that much to offer him. Just like Jesus was, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient unto death. God promises to elevate you and lift you up and give you a life that is blessed and happy that you could not have created on your own. Would you stand, please? Holy Spirit, in these next few moments, examine us. Reveal anything in us that is contrary to you and will happily confess it and ask for forgiveness. We want to live this poor in spirit life because we know that that is the pathway to a blessed life. So we lean into you right now. We get underneath your authority. We promise to cultivate compassion. We promise to release anybody who we feel resentment and bitterness toward and we forgive them. Because God, most of all, we want to experience your presence and see you working in our life. And all God's people said, amen. Come on up and get a prayer if it's meaningful to you as they sing.